Hi, I'm Josh uh, with Bomb Shelter Radio, and we're here with uh, Mike McCarthy. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so, Mike, I don't know how to jump into this. There's so much. Uh, maybe you just start talking. You mean you weren't recording for the last hour? No. Oh, okay. <clears throat> well, that was my best stuff. I'll see what else I got. <laughs> just repeat everything. Yeah. Uh, what do you want to know? I mean, I had some questions for you, like, you know, why are you here, and mm -hmm. where were you on the night of the 5th? And the night of the 5th. Et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But, uh, I just gave you a quick tour of the house, as I do most people that come from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. I wish, uh, I wish the, all you so-called outsiders, I, I wish the insiders here in Memphis, after going through the last six months of what we've gone through, yeah. have the gift of the viewpoint of the outsiders that come here and are fascinated by yeah. music and um, and art, culture, uh, the city's history. And uh, if you want a point of reference to what I'm talking about or some way to jump in into the conversation, and since you've been living here, uh, yesterday... Uh, the Urban Land Institute was here, mm -hmm. and the week before that, the National Charette Institute was here, and they heard from the citizenry, uh, at least the ones who showed up and cared enough to have an opinion, uh, about our fairgrounds area, which is, yeah. you know, you could walk from my house to the fairgrounds. Right. Uh, I live in Cooper Young, and the fairgrounds is like, you know, a block, or several blocks away. But uh, it's been public and green for 155 years, the Coliseum where Elvis and the Beatles played, uh, has been there since 1963. Doors open since 64. It's as old as I am. Mm -hmm. And uh, yesterday they determined that the Coliseum should be maintained, preserved, found uh, an adaptive use found for it, that the green space should be kept public with amenities added, and, um, and that it should all work together as part of a cohesive whole which unites the neighborhoods, mm -hmm. which there's about five neighborhoods and a college and, a, and an, uh, a junior high school connecting all these spaces. Yeah. So yesterday was great. Yeah. It showed that the public actually cared enough to give their input because sometimes I think we're taking it for granted that we created rock and roll and, and, and did all these things. Yeah, and, um, and so it's interesting to me that you're, that, uh, you know, I've heard being here that you've been really involved in preserving the Coliseum and... Um, in the landscape of the place, and that's one thing I've encountered in my city, San Francisco. It uh, it's constantly being bowled over, and the cultural is equity is, yeah, very quickly being lost. Hmm. Um, you know, and uh, because of outsiders, you know, uh, mm -hmm. outsiders who don't share or have a vision, right? But I mean, I I I've been in San Francisco several times. I edited my Guitar Wolf uh, videos there like a long time ago. But uh, I thought that you guys had laws, like they do in Boston, which prevent people from coming in and knocking down anything. That's all changed recently. Because of gentrification yeah, and development? Yeah, yeah. Overpopulation? I mean, yeah, I mean, there's such a huge influx of, of wealth. You know, a lot of people want it. It's always been that there. But why wouldn't wealthy people want to have the good taste that they were given with the gift of their money to want to see things like that saved so that they could enjoy those things? You got me. You know, I think it's uh, San Fran the character of of San Francisco. I, in my my opinion, or what I've sort of learned about it, um, is that it's always been a gold rush state. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, as far back as you know, the gold rush. Like <laughs> people come there to cash in. 
And uh, what about when the vein runs dry? Yeah, and that's what's interesting. There is a hole of underground artists, or myself included. You know, I've been there 20 years, mm-hmm. um, and you know, I moved there as a young person, and um, you know, I fell in love with it in a way. You know, but you sort of are always living on the edge. You can't buy a house there. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, a friend told me once that um, the only way to to really stay there is like if you uh, get an apartment, if you rent an apartment. That's as good as owning it in San Francisco. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's the best you're gonna get. Well, you can buy a house here. Mm-hmm. Um, I might be selling you mine. <laughs> uh, if this legacy business keeps up. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I just uh, it's it's cheap to live here, cheap enough. Um, I had said this before, but when you're 17 miles away from Mississippi, yeah, it keeps you real. Mm-hmm. in a way that maybe these other cities have not been able to be kept real because we're, uh, you know, that close to where the blues are created. Yeah. And there's an, an economic imprint or footprint with that that carries, I think, through time. Mm-hmm. There's a reason for that. You know, we we lost the Civil War, but we created rock and roll. Yeah. So we've done about all I think we can we can do, and we're never going to be favored. Uh, we're going to be pretty much taken advantage of, so uh, by by the larger part of the United States. Uh-huh. So I think you'll always be able to come down here and find uh, refuge, uh-huh. whether it's financial or find your own San Francisco, you know, on Madison Avenue or you know, mm-hmm. uh, Lamar or whatever, you know wherever you go. Yeah. Not, uh, not. I mean, I speak in these big broad terms, but I mean, I've been doing it for thirty-one years, yeah. so. Yeah, well, as a cultural producer, I you know I, I wonder about your aesthetic, like kind of looking at your films and learning about it and seeing uh, the, the the aesthetic that inspires you. Um, Did you see my YouTube channel? Uh, Did I send you that? I saw your. I looked at your uh, gorilla. Yeah, film. yeah, yeah. Yeah, and um, and then I yeah I started watching you know like Super mm-hmm. Scarlet eighty and mm-hmm. all these films or, um, and I was really like. I was really intrigued by them, um, and I'm just curious uh, about that aesthetic. And or I guess I'm, maybe what I'm trying to ask is, what like as far as a contribution to sort of the the American sort of cultural fabric, the zeitgeist. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think? How does Memphis fit in? Uh, well, how does it fit in? I, I think there's there's three coasts. There's the West Coast, the East Coast, and the Southern Coast. Mm-hmm. And the Mississippi River, you know, leads down to the Southern Coast, which I guess you could say is New Orleans or Mississippi, Biloxi, all that. I'm originally from Northeast Mississippi. Mm-hmm. But the Southern Coast could be the banks of the Mississippi right here in Memphis. In other words, the empire, the industry that was created by comic books in New York or films in Hollywood was pretty much... Uh, added to, if not uh, surpassed by the rock and roll culture that was created on the southern coast. Mm-hmm. Uh, rockabilly and or blues and country and soul and gospel and pop that came together to make rock and roll. So uh, I don't know. If, I think we might have been have been doing a lousy job. Or we, and I don't mean to be negative. I'm trying not to be negative lately since all this good stuff has happened. Mm-hmm. And I guess it all comes down to how you phrase things or word things. We need to do a better job 
uh, promoting rock and roll and soul and gospel and, and, and dealing with the King assassination, which is getting further and further behind us, but somehow still stays with us. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, you know, Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas and that didn't stop them or slow them down. They just re they put concrete over everything every few years. But here, I think it's important that we don't, I think it's important that we expose the wounds, which, because those, those wounds are, you know, hard to heal, and they actually say something greater about the fabric of, of America and the kind of place that would create rock and roll, or had created it 14 years before mm-hmm. or so. Um, I've, dear, I'm uh, tangents, but here, what was your original question? Well, I think you, you answered it very eloquently, actually, um, because, I you know, oftentimes, uh, when I think about art or cultural production, um, the the character of a place, you know, like mm-hmm. uh, whether it be you know Memphis and civil rights movement, or um, the way racism still kind of raises its head everywhere, but maybe mm-hmm. here it's more amplified. Um, I think that has a way of informing sort of like the art we make or the music, um, and uh, the the character of place, you know. Um, right, I and mean, Super Starlet AD, race was a metaphor for hair color, mm-hmm. uh, or v- vice versa, where you know the brunettes and the blondes actually form a gang together called Super Starlets, yeah. and they uh, are opposed to the cult of the redheads, or the brunettes, you know, or the blondes, yeah. and the blondes are almost extinct, and and th- those are just metaphors that I play with, and I, I think I- I've taken a cue from Memphis in the way that. Sam Phillips was creating a musical form that had no market. And I look back on like cartoon strips from the 40s or 50s or ways to, ways for me to do my art in different formats, which frankly the markets no longer exist. The model no longer exists. And, um, but maybe that's okay because it's Memphis and I'm here and, and I'll get a job, you know, washing dishes or, or maybe being part of something greater that has something to do with historic preservation uh, or rock and roll and soul music as an imprint on the city, that's, that would make me super happy. Yeah. But, but as it is, um, I continue to do things that are based on a model that no longer exists, mm-hmm. which rock and roll, as we know it to be a middle-class hobby pursuit, no longer exists. It's a specialty now. Yeah. And if you place rock and roll, you are defying what the trends are you know, but you're doing it and playing to a smaller group. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so my work is underground. My, my comic book work was always underground. It was called Alternative Comics in the 90s. Yeah. Uh, and al- there was alternative music in the 80s. But basically all that pointed to was we're going underground until you people get your shit together mm-hmm. and the corporations go away or or you divest in this corporate thought speak about, about what really is people's music, people's thoughts. Mm-hmm. So I've been underground now for so long, you know, it's like hard to imagine how I could succeed monetarily by doing work that reached the masses because the masses don't care anymore about the American century, post-World War II American pop culture. But there is a certain huge clique of people, especially in Europe, that like it, love it, Mm -hmm. you know. Uh, We all have to pursue what we're good at yeah. And I just like comic books, rock and roll, and drive-in cinema. Yeah. And now add to that, 
the wrestling culture that's here. Wrestling is a part of that Americana fabric. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, basketball history at the Coliseum and so forth, just here in Memphis I'm speaking of. Basically, the Coliseum becomes not just a historic preservation item, but it becomes this place where all these American pop culture, this agenda happened through the American century, which we're losing. Like you say, they're knocking down San Francisco. Well, they're knocking down the American century. Yeah. For what reason? So we can live in the Chinese century mm -hmm. or whatever. Yeah. I think it's more important than ever that we maintain the Coliseum, 20th century landmarks, anchors to communities, a sense of place, yeah. because that ensures that my work might be understood better by future generations, just in my own selfish way of saying, hey, look, I'm drawing superheroes, or I'm drawing these weird counterculture characters in, in this, you know, sort of, I don't know what name, Robert Crumb-esque way, or whatever name would appeal to the most people as far as underground, uh, uh, mm -hmm. you know, narratives go, references go back to the past. But I, I really dig the past, because I think that's where the future is. Yeah, man. Wow. Wow. That's, I think you said it all right there. Yeah, Good night. Good night. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. We'll see you. It must be those banana pancakes. Oh, man, this yeah. is delicious. So maybe, yeah, so you talk a little bit about, when we first started, you talked about legacy and sort of like this idea that maybe time is growing short. I've recently turned 40, and I feel it. You know, I feel <laughs> like, man, I don't have a lot of time. Mm -hmm. You know, i got to get after it. And, you were born uh, before Elvis died. Yeah. I, what, was I? 75? Uh, 74. Oh, okay. Born. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, I, I really, I hear you. I, I appreciate, and it's a kind of a breath of fresh air to hear about someone who's been underground for so long. I try to do that, too. Mm -hmm. It's like, I believe in that. Well, this post-apocalyptic frenzy that Hollywood's in, giving you these movies about, how are we going to survive? And, you know, we're already surviving yeah. in a post-apocalyptic world, pop culturally speaking. Yeah. I am. Yeah. I've already gone underground to the bunker. Yeah. Where I've got my little world and, and my kids see that world every day and they'll probably go forth. They, you know, my son may not give one hoot about Ziggy Stardust and the spiders from Mars, but by yeah. God, he certainly heard them mm -hmm. <laughs> at an informative age and yeah. um, could re reject them or accept them. Uh, and that goes for Elvis and, uh, uh, you know, T-Rex and, um, you know, Captain America and... Uh, uh, Bridget Bardot and uh, everybody else. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> some real, some unreal, you yeah. know, mixed in there. But uh, actually tomorrow, uh, you're here at a very interesting time with all the historic buildings that are being saved and mm -hmm. you're, you're getting to see this stuff like firsthand. Yeah. And your listeners should look up um, the Sears Crosstown building in Memphis. They should mm -hmm. look up the Hotel Chiska downtown which used to house WHBQ Radio, where Dewey Phillips first played Elvis on the radio. Wow. On July 5th, 1954, he played That's All Right 14 mm -hmm. times. Transmitted, it's going through outer space now. There's no record of it. Yeah. We can only mythologize what that was like. But um, these buildings are being repurposed, are being saved. The Levitt Shell here in town. Uh, the Coliseum is a mid-century modern architecture uh, arena that's being saved like many of the other arenas in the country are being saved for mid-size high school graduation civic events mm -hmm. roller derby we need mid-size venues in america and all the better if they're from the american century oh, yeah. where where all this post-war uh america sprang from middle class sprang from you know yeah uh, 
I'm not leading a middle class lifestyle. I'm very lower middle class. But I think that when the middle class does return, based on what we found out yesterday with the Urban Land Institute, I would like to think that our Memphis is going to be ready. Yeah. Memphis will be ready and we'll say, hey, we created rock and roll, which is the ultimate expression of the middle class in America. Mm-hmm. So come visit Sun Studio. Come see where Elvis Presley's buried. Yeah. You know, go to the Mid-South Coliseum, see the city history that's there in the museum spaces. Yeah. You know, um, that's that's what I'm hoping will happen, and I hope I'm a part, I continue to be a part of that thought process. Well, that's great, man. Um, tomorrow, a friend of mine named Lisa Hume, uh, who is works for the Levitt Shell, she's in uh, uh, she, she's in a creative capacity at the at the Levitt Shell, and John Bass, who is the head of the Mike Curb Foundation at Rhodes, and uh, there's a, a, another group of people as well, especially for this Johnny Cash statue project. There's another group of people that are specifically about the Johnny Cash statue, which I live in Cooper Young. Johnny Cash first played here in December 1954 at a little church over here, Methodist Church called Galloway. Wow. And now it's called Cooper Walker Place. Mm-hmm. And I, again, I urge every, your listeners to look these places up. But we're trying to put a seven-foot-tall bronze statue to Johnny Cash at the church out front to mark the, the space yeah. and hopefully protect the building from developers, future you know, negative thought, you know, whatever. The building should always be repurposed. It should always stand red brick for the building for what it for what it was, you know, this expression of Johnny Cash wanting to follow his religious pursuits, play at this at this place. Probably did not even play secular music, but who knows? Yeah. Um, and we're tomorrow we are starting a nonprofit called the Memphis Legacy Project. Wow. Uh, which we will then try to populate the city with statues of wow. Otis Redding, Rufus Thomas, Sam Phillips, uh, Marion Keisker, you, you name it. Yeah. Uh, Men, women, white, black—you know—people that are are war heroes. Mm-hmm. There, there are there are Memphis war heroes. Wow. I think they're America's uh, musical heroes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, wow, man. Well, I, that is so cool, man. I'm so I, glad I was able to come and talk to you before sure. I move on. Do we have to break for a commercial now? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, Cheerios. <laughs> I wish I had a bowl of Cheerios. Yeah. Well, maybe we can go get one. Yeah. But product placement, Josh. <laughs> is, yeah. It's very important. Well, it's being lost. No, somebody's got to pay for these statues, you know. Actually, content is being lost, actually. That's what's going on. Mm-mm. Yeah. All right. Well, man. in the 20th century, the commercials were art. Yeah. Not anymore, huh? Stan, Stan Freeberg, where are you? <laughs> Josh needs your help. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, Mike. Well, good luck with everything. And, Thank you. Um, We'll talk again soon. All right, man. from the commercial segment and <laughs> yeah. Josh had some great ideas go ahead yeah um, you know being an artist and uh, being underground and it's, it's such so refreshing to talk to you somebody who's been underground for so long um, and fought that fight and I think when I I consider like the loss of like kind of an, an American culture um, 
I always look to artists as the as the the people who can I don't know sort of like have a a larger view on things. And I think part of that is because we're not driven necessarily by the bottom line first, you know. Um I yeah, and I'm I'm glad you brought that up because I should say that th- there's a book called the New Town Square by Robert Archibald. Mm-hmm. And in that book, he says, you know, change is inevitable, but humans have a lousy way of knowing good change from bad change. Yeah. And uh, he says a lot of other things, too, about a sense of place and uh, the mystic uh, the mystic thread of, of memory, yeah. which, uh, you know, I want my son to walk in the same structures and places that I walked, that my father walked. Yeah. Because those are the things that maintain the integrity of America. It doesn't matter if you're Japanese American, Chinese American, African American. Uh, the the real issue here, the real challenge, is overpopulation. Yeah. The developers and the people who want to knock down things because that's how they make money are only being informed of this market uh, progression by overpopulation. Mm-hmm. You know, if there's a cool little funky building in San Francisco that houses a hundred people, well, the developer knows that 200 people want to get in there, so why not build it straight up? Yeah. And, but, but, but the better idea is to repurpose the building or add to the building yeah. or augment the building mm-hmm. and keep some element of it historic so that we have an anchor to the 20th century. Yeah. Because um, other countries are rising, others are falling. It's important, you know, when you go to, to uh, a place that you, you know what, where you're at. Sometimes you know you, you you'll get on a, a off of an interstate, and um, you're just you know you're in Memphis, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. But there's so many corporate franchises around. There's no sense of place. There's no anchor. You could be lost. There's no pride in the neighborhood. No one has spoken up for the territory for the patch of land that's represented there. Culture, if culture ever encroaches there, it will be when those buildings are abandoned. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just. Uh, shallow and heartless to see thoughtless development yeah. go up. I live in a hundred-year-old house, you know, uh, that totally needs repairs. <laughs> yeah. But uh, very uh, proud to be in this in a house that's cold in the winter and hot in the summer. It's just the way things are. You're not guaranteed comfort your entire life, yeah. or any sort of amount of money for just existing. And I, I think the uh, these are values that I necessarily wasn't taught by my World War II parents who are older. Uh, it was just ingrained in me or I just observed it, mm. you know. Yeah. So I've never been that much of a materialist. And when I have had a chance to get a foot in the door, it's always been short-lived. So these ideas of this higher purpose or this notion that I have about my art or the city has always sort of been as much forced upon me as it has been coming out of me. Mm. So, um, I mean, I would like to have, you know, an investor come forward and say, hey man, here's some money, make a movie. Yeah. The aesthetic of the movie would still be all the things that we've discussed. Mm-hmm. But at least that message might reach more people. Yeah. That comic book that I did might reach more people. Uh, as it is right now, that's the problem. It's like, I don't have a problem being creative. I have a problem living in poverty 
uh, knowing that uh, my ideas have value. Yeah, yeah. And and you know, and a lot of other people's do as well. Yeah. So how do you get the word out before you die? You know that what you're doing is important. Some people never get there. Right. You know. Somebody you know has to go to after someone's long gone. They have to go to their house and look at all the amazing yeah. work that they've done. Well, my work speaks to a generation that's already long gone. Yeah. So, um, and that's what is attractive. Yeah. Uh, to to most people, I mean, I I've I've made films for twenty years. You know, I made uh, Damsel's Daughter of Helvis, Teenage Tupelo, The Sore Losers, Broad Daylight, Elvis Meets the Beatles, Shine On, Sweet Starlet, The Sore. I say The Sore Losers. No. Uh, Cigarette Girl, uh, and then I drew comic books. Excuse me, I drew comic books for Fantagraphics, Dark Horse, Apple, and the nineties. I'm trying to embark on a new comic book that might possibly be, just be called Helvis, H-E-L-V-I-S. Cool. And uh, I played in a couple of bands, but there's just no time to pursue those kind of things anymore. Mm. Uh, but if you want to find my work, it's at GorillaMonsterFilms.com, which is G-U-E-R-R-I-L-L-A, MonsterFilms.com. Mike McCarthy on Facebook with two lowercase c's and McCarthy. And uh, Google some of these things we've talked about, search for them, and, and uh, find me. All right, man. We'll we'll definitely find you. I'll find you again. I'm coming back in August, and so oh, okay. we'll have a follow up. Are you coming back in Death Week? Yeah, Death Week. That's what I heard. I heard it's the most wretched time, and I'm like, perfect. <laughs> well, yes. You mean weather wise? Weather wise. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, tell me about Death Week. Oh well, it's Elvis Tribute Week to some. It's Death Week to the locals. Um, <laughs> it is the. Um, Let's see, Elvis passed away on August 16th, 1977, mm -hmm. so we're uh, in an off year for an anniversary, which to me are the best because that huge throngs of people mm -hmm. tend, tend to come on the 35th, the 40th, you know, the, all that. But since this is an off year, this would be a good one because it's, it's kind of cool to be able to navigate and mm -hmm. not have so many people around and, yeah. and have that thought. Sometimes the other thing is good, too. Uh, I made a film called Tupelove which is showing at Grayson, has been showing at Grayson for three years now, wow. in the Bijou Theater there. And it was commissioned for me to do it at, uh, through the city of Tupelo, through Sean Johnson, who was the head of uh, the Convention Visitors Bureau there, the head of tourism at the time. And I made this film for him, and then he gave it to Grayson because it deals with esoteric aspects of Elvis's boyhood in Tupelo wow. from the time before he was born to the time he moved at 13 and the death of his twin brother, uh, uh, Jesse Guerin. So I, I think I just I've thought about this lately. It's like, you know, the age of the cult film is over where I can't that those days are gone, the model is no longer there, where I can make a Rocky Hara picture show and it could play for seven years at one theater, yeah. which blows my mind. But that's what happened. Yeah, yeah. You know? Because the model then was you, you had no VHS tapes, you had no cable, you had to constantly leave your house to be entertained. Yeah. And run into people with different experiences, et cetera, et cetera. Um, well, that ain't going to happen anymore. Right. But I can make a film that plays at Graceland for three years, which is almost like a cult run. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm very happy for that. But Death Week is basically a week-long uh, appreciation and observance of, of Elvis Presley's death. And Elvis Presley, for those who don't know, is known as the king of rock and roll. You might want to look him up, search him up on Google. Okay, we'll but, do uh but to some of us who have reached higher levels of Elvis understanding, like you can reach higher levels of 
David Bowie understanding or, uh, you yeah. know, Howlin' Wolf understanding or, or whatever. Um, Elvis is the king of American pop culture because when he was a boy, he read comic books. When he was a teenager, he helped create rock and roll. And when he was an adult, he appeared in 33 films. Yeah. And comic books, rock and roll, and movies are the three American pop culture contributions to the world in the 20th century. And Elvis, the frame, time frame that Elvis lived, 30, the 42 years from 35 to 77, that 42 years it is the greatest time period uh, for American pop culture in the 20th century. Yeah. And anybody now who wants to emulate a feel or an attitude or a hipster vibe or any of these things you want to call them, positive, negative, whatever, they visit that that 42-year period, wow. whether you're talking about the 50s, 60s, or 70s. Yeah. And I, I prove anybody, or I ask anybody to prove me wrong on that. Yeah. Other than World War II itself, um, those three decades... Uh, are mutually exclusive to the greatest things that ever happened in the history of mankind as American contributions. Boom. Thank you, sir. What? What, what? <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate you coming in. Yeah, man. And we'll, uh, you know... The secretary will see you out, and then there's a bill, a payment plan at the door. Okay. Yeah. Um, do you accept food stamps? Uh, I already have those. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mike, it's been a pleasure, mm. and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Thank All you. Right. prodigy of the American educational system. Yeah, I'm an educational success story, as they call it in California. You know, mm. I uh, wasn't groomed to go to college. So many young people these days are, they're expected by their parents or whatever to go um, to, to college. It's an industry. Much. Yeah. And I wasn't like Even that. though no job is waiting. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're still like, this is what you have to do. And I think for now, for a lot of people... College is not a higher education, it's just an extension of your basics, you know? Sure. And, um, so anyways, when I was in... Like World War II, joining the Army or was an extension of your basic training. Basic yeah. training. Right. It's like exactly. an Army term. Yeah, and, you know, for, uh, for me, I was raised by a single mom, and, um, you know, I got into martial arts, and I'm a product of, like, the early 80s, and so it, I was inundated at the time with martial arts movies, you know, at the time. Karate Kid? Karate Kid, Jean-Claude Van Damme, like, I guess Chuck <laughs> Norris to some extent. Yeah. So this straight-to-VHS thing was, like, how I was sort of my relationship to this weird sort of de-evolution of pop culture, you know? Uh -huh. um, but that really inspired me to get into martial arts, and long story short, um, I did, and I was didn't go to school, I uh, or college, rather. I just did martial arts, and by the time I was... You know, 17, I had a karate school, and, you know, by the time I graduated high school, I was too busy running karate school 
to go to college. Yeah. So, but anyways, one of my... Uh, Do millionaires ever go to college? Isn't there that theory that most millionaires never attend college? They don't have to. No, I'm saying their drive and their focus prevents them from basic training, it, so to speak. Yeah. I guess maybe they, they can bypass that. Anyway. So you could chop a block in half right now. No, I don't think so. That, I mean, that's a trick. You know? That's yeah. A, like, there's a lot of, like, there's a, there's a veil, you know? <laughs> like magicians. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. Yeah. We don't talk about that. You learned a lot, though. No, I learned a lot about discipline and sort of like believing in yourself and sort of your own abilities. So karate sort of became your missing father? Yeah, big time. Big time. And my sort of like uh, stepfathers or sort of like my absent boyfriend, my mother's absent boyfriend, mm -hmm. you know, or, mm -hmm. were kind of like my karate teachers. Mm -hmm. And one of them was a fellow by the name of George Chung. And uh, he was, you know, he loved pop culture. He was... Uh, Elvis impersonator, actually. You know, he would go to Vegas and do this thing regularly. But, you know, he's this karate Elvis guy. And wow. he was all, he also loved films. Like, I, st I acted in a couple of his sort of B-movie sort of karate films. You know? Wow. Yeah. So, um... Have you talked about this before? No, I actually haven't, really. Wow. Yeah. What were some of the film's names? Uh, one was Kindergarten Ninja. Another one was Fight to Win. I mean, very obscure, you know. Were they features or shorts? No, they were feature length, you know. But shot on video. Shot on video. VHS yeah. even. Oh yeah, man. Oh it's my god. Dirty the better. <laughs> in fact, they went on. What kind of brought me out of it all, or sort of, you know, talk about the, um, the veil being um, taken away. You know, uh, the the last thing that they did before they sort of ended their career as like these karate guys um, was they tried to make a kids TV show called The Adventures of Kangarati, which was sort of like a live-action puppet thing. It was really strange and hokey and weird. Um, but uh, I was so happy because, um, you know, Mr. They, it was starring Mr. Miyagi, you know, like Pat Morita. And, man, you know, wow. growing up, like, watching The Karate Kid and being like, holy crap, like, that's yeah. the dude right there. That's the sensei. Right. I, I, he's my mentor. Right. Working with him hand-in-hand, hand, all of a sudden, he's not Mr. Miyagi, you know. You start to realize that, oh, he's just some guy. You know, and I mean, a nice guy. I won't get into his character, but it wasn't yeah. like what I. It wasn't what like you know. I wouldn't say I wouldn't introduce him to like young karate kids. You know, that uh -huh. were like wanting to. Because he's a, he's an actor who. He's an actor. Had seen his better days. Yeah, exactly, and so and now he wound up making you know, whatever this weird puppet show. Right. You know, which is why it's important to keep shifting your emphasis within your field. Mm -hmm. It's just that some people find their field hard to define. An actor is an actor, a comic book artist is a comic book artist. What do you do to keep yourself not being from being bitter? And, and uh, that's what I've tried to do here. You know, I, I, thought, I thought by drawing comic books I could reach a certain pop culture goal. And that's what I'm really good at anyway, so that's the natural thing to lean toward. But then playing in rock and roll bands was also an option. Mm -hmm. But it's so easy to define that or let that be a waste of time or a drain on your time. Yeah. Because what are your goals for this thing? And now you're involving three or four other people in it, right? Yeah. Which begins to become a social thing, whereas the comic book thing is an isolationist thing. Yeah. Then you reach out to make films and become a filmmaker. And I'm speaking for my, my own self here. Mm -hmm. Then you're really playing a social game, 
which is informed by the cartooning, has soundtrack elements that are apparent from your music interest, mm -hmm. but now you're dealing with a hundred people, right? And that has come to an end for me, and unless I get some more money, it's come to an end. WAIF, uh, W-A-I-F, is this uh, latest thing that I've been working on uh, that I only asked for $6,500 for on Kickstarter and received, but when it boiled right down to it, only $1,200 or so was actually available from that money to make the film. Wow. When all the cost production of these props, the robot suits, the spaceships, mm -hmm. etc. Yeah, yeah. So then what do you do? Right? Yeah, yeah. You start saving buildings, which involves thousands of people. Right. So I find myself, I don't want to be like Mr. Morita. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want to be fluid. I want to be agile. I want to yeah. keep thinking about how I cannot be bored, how my, I hate the term OCD, but if that's what it is, can be best applied to something which shows me what my limits are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, So as a kid, you're you were exploring this karate world but you knew that ultimately you would have to go to college or that you would have to drop this or that you would just pursue it until it found some well i wanted legacy you know and what i felt was i had reached a point you know it's kind of like being too isolationist or too uh single minded single mm -hmm. track minded mm -hmm. um i knew that like i was a creative person and for me to do, just <clears throat> express that through martial arts, it wasn't enough. Right. You know? And I felt like, hey, like, I could be a 40-year-old balding karate guy and feel, like, weird that I never went to college or never pursued anything else. Or I could be a 40-year-old <laughs> balding guy. Yeah. Like, <laughs> well, you know, I mean, whatever. Like, vanity and stuff. But, like, I could be a 40-year-old artist and still be a baby, you know, and still be learning, right, exactly. and still have something to give, and Naivete. Exactly. Refreshing naivete. Yeah. Welcome to Memphis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I definitely think that that is, you know, your your track is a very inspiring, because I feel like that is what an artist should do. You should be <clears throat> flexible. You should be fluid. You, you should know what you're good at, too, and what you're not good at. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise you enter into the Peter Principle. Yeah. You know, and the Peter Principle is uh, states, you know, you're really good at painting the color red, but somehow you felt like you had to go off and paint the color blue or mm -hmm. yellow or black, when really you should have stuck with red, and all because the, there's a million shades inside of red. Mm -hmm. And I, I try to be self-aware of that as well, and usually somebody will stop you, so you don't even have to think about it too hard. You reach that wall where somebody goes, okay glass ceiling far yeah. enough uh, and you know how then how you deal with that you either funnel those thoughts expressions bitternesses lessons learned back into your art and you retreat until you find something else to do mm -hmm. uh, or you just you get angry and we my friends and I there's an article there on the wall that is blown up from a newspaper article from 1984 and the main line in the one of the end bottom paragraphs is they were angry quote unquote and it's a, an article that was written in 1984 about three kids who visited an art museum, the Brooks Museum here in Memphis, and were laughing at, at, at the stuff that they saw that, and they couldn't relate. And this writer, Donald Labadee, wrote a piece in the paper about these three guys who couldn't relate to what they saw because they were angry. Yeah. Well, we were the three guys that he was referring to, oh, although no. he didn't have the wherewithal to come up and say anything to us or interview us. 
he just observed us like some sort of lab experiment. Yeah. And uh, we moved to Memphis that year, uh, George, George Cole and I. Wow. And our friend John went in the Navy. And we were in the Rock Roaches at the time. And we had this sort of David Letterman-esque, cynical, smart-ass take on, you know, things around us. That's all. We were just being infused by the current state of pop culture at the time. Yeah. And yet now, you know, 35 years later, uh, we've done anything but uh, be the barbarians at the gate or, or be, be the... That, that article suggests that we had nothing to offer. Yeah. But we had plenty to offer. Mm -hmm. We just had to indoctrinate ourselves into this urban culture because we were coming from gravel roads in Mississippi. Yeah. So things were funny to us up here. Yeah, yeah. Now they're hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> I can't stop uh, laughing from crying. <laughs> but anyway, thanks for, again, part three. We're wrapping up part three. Yeah, thanks yeah. for coming in and... Uh, you know? Absolutely, and tell us again where we can find you on the uh, internet. Well, I'm Mike McCarthy. I have a Facebook page called Mike McCarthy. That's two lowercase c's, uh, I think, in my name, because somebody else created it for me a long time ago. I don't even remember. <laughs> but uh, Gorilla Monster Films is is uh, the thing that's I archive my ideas there. There's a Coliseum Coalition page on Facebook, which is detailing the saving of our historic. Uh, Mid-Century Arena, where Elvis and the Beatles and a lot of other people played. James Brown played there 14 times. Um, making a film called Waif right now. It's a low-budget science fiction movie that I got a little Kickstarter money to do. It's about a telekinetic teenage robot fighter um, who crashes in a junkyard in her spaceship, mourns the loss of her sister, and fights off a robotic empire. Wonderful. And that's called Waif, W-A-I-F. And uh, starring Morgan Pruitt is... Uh, very interesting actress who's 50, just turned 16 years old. I'm promoting my daughter's career. She's 16, Hannah Starr and the Teenage Teenagers. Mm -hmm. She's actually got to go. I got to take her out today to play at Shelby Farms um, out east. Uh, trying to get a Johnny Cash statue put in Cooper Young here in Memphis, Tennessee uh, with our 501 called the, the Memphis Legacy Project. And um, maybe thinking about drawing some comic books if I can make some money at it. Nice. I'll go back to the back to the roots. I hope so. Thank you for having me. All right, man. Thanks so much. We'll talk again. Uh -huh.